tonight more than words. And really I want us just to focus uh, as an Easter Sunday evening on those two verses there, Romans 10 verses 9 and 10. Let me read them again. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Two essential elements. The first thing we must see here is that Paul presents us not one but two essential elements to salvation. He closes verse 9 and 10 in very similar ways. The close of verse 9 he says, you will be saved. And the close of verse 10, he says, and is saved. In other words, the things that he says in verse 9 before that and the things he says in verse 10 before that are the means to being saved. He says, this, this, and you'll be saved. This, if you do this and this, you're saved. Before we go any further, let's note two things, important things, about these two elements. The first is this, Paul is not concerned with the order in which he puts them. In fact, he chooses in verse 9 an interesting order. He first speaks about what we say and then what we believe. Now, in verse 10, he puts it around the other way and he speaks first about what we believe and then about what we say. But you might look at verse 9 and say, well, how can we say things that have got any salvational merit in them if we aren't first believing things in our heart. Surely what we believe in our heart has got to come first. Well, yes, it has. That's not Paul's issue here. He's not uh, disputing which comes first or which is second. His point is they're both essential. And since they're both essential, it doesn't matter which one he puts first. And he's deliberately first putting one first and then the other and then putting the second first and then the first. He's saying, let's not get tied up about the order. Let's understand they're both equally necessary. The second important point is, of course, this. One alone is not enough. They are both essential. Now, it's massively important in our generation within the church uh, because there's a whole sector that has grown up within the church that denies the need to do anything other than believe in the heart. Uh, their reasoning is that anything else then becomes works. If you're going to say that you've got to say things in order to be saved, or you've got to do things that in any way they're linked to your salvation, then you're preaching salvation by works, not salvation by faith. Salvation is by faith, and therefore it is only concerned with what you believe in your heart and nothing else at all. Now, of course, in saying that, they are very clearly building on a biblical truth. It is by faith alone, by grace alone. There is no question of that. We definitely refute and reject any idea of it being salvation by works. And yet Paul quite clearly here links together what you speak with the fact that you're saved. Now, do we therefore just throw out what Paul's saying and say, well, no, Paul, you're wrong in this instant. That sector of the church is right in saying all that matters is what's going on in your heart. It doesn't matter what you're saying. No, we don't. James makes clear the situation, doesn't he? He says that the reality of my faith is proved by what I do. In other words, if our faith is saving faith, then it will automatically produce 
responses in us. It will transform us. It will result in us saying things. It will result in us doing things. And if those things are not there, very clearly we haven't got salvational faith in the first place. Jesus says, by their fruits you will know them. He says we can quite clearly look at someone and by how they behave, how they speak, how they conduct themselves, know whether or not they're saved. The evidence of their having saving faith is the fact that they respond in particular ways in the world. They will bear fruit. And Paul is very clear on that here. He's saying, if we are saved, there will be two clear evidences of it, two elements of it. What we're believing in our hearts and how we're speaking and proclaiming and acting in our lives. Both need to be there. And sadly, once you go down the route that many have gone down, of saying, no, all that matters is what's in the heart, you end up with people claiming to be Christians and living lives that are in absolute contradiction to God's word, believing that they're saved. And churches, and there are many of them in our lands today, especially in the West, where they're packed with people and it's a very popular theology. It doesn't matter what you do in your life. You can indulge really in any sins you like. We never say that from the platform, but that's what it amounts to. Because all that matters is what you believe in your heart. As long as you believe the truth, you're saved. Indeed, they would go as far as to say it doesn't even matter if you get to the point of denying Christ. You're still saved if in your heart you, you, you have faith. That's ludicrous. No, it matters both what we believe and how that expresses itself from us if we actually have saving faith. So let's start here, a creedal confession. Verse 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and verse 10, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. That is an awesome creedal confession, isn't it? It's the first formalized expression of Christian belief that we have. Jesus is Lord. But we need to unpack that. And understand what we mean by it. What Paul means here by it when he says, we express, we state and we live out that Jesus is Lord. What does he mean? Well, first of all, he clearly means that Jesus is God. In the Old Testament, wherever you've got Jehovah or Yahweh, uh, when the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament was produced, uh, they used the word Kyrios uh, there for Yahweh. And that's the very word that's used here for Lord. And it's used in the book of Romans 49 times. And of those 49 times, 30 times he's speaking of Jesus. Eight times he's speaking of God the Father. And 11 times it could be either of the two. The, 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 the clear meaning is, Jesus is God. Jesus is divine. And that is a massive stumbling block to millions in the world today, isn't it? They will accept readily that Jesus was a good man. They will accept that he's a prophet. They'll accept that he was a holy person. They will not accept that he is God. That immediately rules out all other religions on the face of this planet. It rules out uh, cults, Jehovah's Witness, Mormons, and those who would say we believe highly of Christ, but we will not believe, we will not allow that he is God. And yet Paul says, here is the first most important creedal confession you can make. Jesus is Lord, meaning Jesus is God. 
friend, do we believe that this evening? First and foremost, do we believe that he is God of gods and Lord of lords? That for all eternity, from eternity past to eternity future, he is Yahweh. He is the God of all glory. He is the Alpha and the Omega. Now, the second thing implied here is that Jesus is Saviour. When he cries out that Jesus is Lord, it's a recognition not only that he is God, but that he was successful in the mission that he came to earth to do. That he triumphed in his mission. That he went to the cross and he's risen again. That he is Lord, that he is exalted. That he rose victorious not only for himself, but for those who would trust in him. He's anticipating, as it were, that return of Jesus Christ in glory when we read, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, what? That Jesus Christ is Lord. That will be the great cry that echoes through creation at the return of Christ. He has triumphed. He is Lord. My friend, we know that tonight. That he is the saviour. He is the one who has gone through death and come out triumphant the other side. My friends, that should transform the way we look at life, the way we look at death, the way we look at our future, at our agendas, at our priorities, everything. Christ is alive. Christ is one. He is Lord. Acts 4.12 There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given amongst men by which we must be saved. Jesus is Lord. You can reverence anybody you like. You can put them on a pedestal. You can worship them. You can bow the knee to them. You you can dedicate your lives to them. They cannot save you. Only Christ. For only Christ is Lord. And thirdly, if we're to proclaim that Christ is Lord, we're proclaiming that he is Lord of my life. That I'm in submission to him. That he is my Lord. There's a personal element to it there. When Paul's saying if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, he's not talking about you confessing something that is absent and distant and remote and unrelated to you. He's saying that you personally confess, Jesus is Lord. He's my Lord. He's God, he's the saviour and he runs my life. This is the real sticking point for so many who would profess faith in Christ. You see, they would say, there you've gone too far. Profess that he's God, we accept that, that's part of faith. Profess that he rose again from the dead. But as soon as you say he's my Lord, then you're bringing works into it. You're saying that my life starts acting in a particular way in relation to Jesus. That's got nothing to do with me being saved. Well, according to Paul, it has. According to God, it has. He has got to be our Lord. You see, they would argue for some sort of two-tier Christianity. They would talk of sort of carnal Christians, worldly Christians, those who have got Jesus as their saviour but haven't got him as their Lord. And then they would talk of other Christians who've gone further who have got Jesus as their saviour and their Lord. And they would say, that's what we're to aspire to, but that's not necessary for salvation. You can have Jesus as your saviour without having him as your Lord. You can't. 
You have him as your Lord or you don't have him at all. There is no two-tier Christianity. There are just those who are saved and those who are not saved. And those who are saved are those who know him as Saviour and Lord. And that's fundamental to the Christian faith. And this first creedal confession that we find exalts Jesus as Lord, as God, as Saviour, and as the one in whom my life is in submission to. My friend, is that where you stand this evening? This is the much harder part really, isn't it? What we believe in our hearts is relatively easy compared with how we live it out in experience, how we experientially enjoy Christ. So let's start there. How is it going for us in this area? Is it our joy and delight to know Christ as our Lord? Of course it's a joy to know him as our saviour, to know that he's paid for my sins, to know that I'm saved, that I'm going to heaven. But do you enjoy knowing him as your Lord, the one who rules you, the one who reigns, the one who sets your agenda, the one who determines every moment of your life, the one who is sovereign in all that you do? Is that your joy and delight as well? That you want to stand up and boast to the world, I have a Lord who is Jesus Christ. We'll see secondly a heart-transforming truth. So this second area concerns specifically what it is that we believe. What we're holding on to it. What it that lies at the heart of who we are. And for the Christian, according to these verses, verse 9, we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. And verse 10, for with the heart one believes and is justified. I find that interesting, don't you? We expect to read... The being saved is about what we believe, and it does. Verse 9, we believe in our heart, you will be saved. That makes sense, but it's the bit in the middle. Believe in your heart that we probably expected to say, Jesus died for our sin, wouldn't we? If you believe in your heart that Jesus died for your sin, you'll be saved. But it doesn't say that. It says, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And as we said this morning, that just seems skewed to us doesn't it why is it so important that we believe in the resurrection to be saved rather than his death to be saved it's his death that it was all about that's where he paid for our sin that's where he made propitiation that's where he he made atonement for our sin that's where the father's wrath was satisfied in his death well let's make it even harder remember where we were this morning he was delivered up Romans 4.25 he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. You see, God sees it very much about the resurrection. And Paul says we need to see it very much about the resurrection. That the focus in our hearts is, yes, the death of Christ, absolutely. But the death of Christ in relation to the fact that he rose again. And the point, of course, is simply this, as we said this morning. The resurrection proves the acceptance of the sacrifice. If Christ had died and not risen, he would have been a liar, a deceiver, and a total failure as far as saving anybody was concerned. If he did not rise again, he did not save even himself, let alone anybody else. It is the resurrection that proves the efficacy of the, the, of the, the death 
It's the resurrection that proves that Christ was, God was satisfied. It proves that God accepted that payment for our sin. That's why the New Testament evangelists made so much of the resurrection. You read through the New Testament. You read the sermons that are there, the evangelistic messages that are there. And always the focus is on the resurrection. They didn't have to focus on Christ's death. Everybody knew that Christ had died. It had just happened. Everybody knew he'd, he'd gone to the cross and died. The, the people knew what it was. He claimed about his death, that I've got to die and rise again. That, you know, I'm, die, I'm going to die for your sins. They knew that. No, the issue was, did it work or not? And that wasn't about whether or not he died. That was about whether or not he rose again. So what they went out proclaiming was that Christ has risen. In other words, what Jesus promised he would do, he has done. And God was satisfied with it. And therefore, we can preach salvation in his name. Because he came back to life again from the dead. That's what so many were martyred for. It wasn't for their insisting that Jesus Christ died. Everybody knew that. Nobody cared if they went around saying, Jesus died. What they cared about was them going around saying, Jesus rose again. Because that makes him God, that makes him Lord, that makes him the Messiah, that makes him the one he claimed to be and successful in the work that he said he came to do. My friend, this is where the assurance comes for the Christian. The victory comes in his death, the assurance comes in his resurrection. Do we hold those two together? You know, we praise God for the death of Jesus. That was my... The, the penalty being paid for my sin. Jesus went through all of that agony in order that I might be saved. And so we pour out our thanksgiving to God for, our, for his death because that's, that's our salvation. But our assurance comes with the resurrection. Do we praise God for that? That he rose again. Therefore we can be certain. We, we can have that, that hope. We can have that confidence. We can face death ourselves knowing that it has been paid for knowing that it actually worked. I love it in 1 Corinthians 15, where we're looking Wednesday nights at the moment, where Paul just puts forward the, the argument of the opposition, doesn't he? So powerfully. 1 Corinthians 15, 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins, and those also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only... We are of all people most to be pitied. I mean, what a black picture. I mean, do you realize that if Christ had not risen from the dead, we would be stupid to be here tonight. We would really need our heads examining, wouldn't we? To, to be coming out on a night when we could be doing all sorts of other things, to sit here in a, in a place, listening to preaching about some guy who made a load of promises that he couldn't even keep, died and couldn't come back to life again, who absolutely failed in the mission he came to do, would be singing praises to God for something that never happened, praying to a God through somebody who is dead and buried. How, how mad would that be? And then to go out and tell other people about it and tell them that they need this Jesus, Paul says that would be madness beyond belief. We'd be pitied above all people. But then he says those amazing words, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The final, definitive, unquestionable, unchangeable proof. Christ has risen. 
my friend, let's just in the last few minutes apply these truths, shall we? Because these really should transform our lives. And I'd prepared this uh, earlier in the week, but it's just come home to me even more in the last uh, day or so, how it is possible to be a Christian and yet so have such difficulty with looking at death. And it shouldn't be like that. That's not God's intent. Death is the final enemy. Scripture says that. The last enemy to be defeated is death. And, and it is there before us all. And it is, it is the great unknown. We're stepping into where no man has been and come back except Christ himself. But its victory has been taken from it. The sting has been taken from it. Because Christ has risen. So I just want to look at a couple of things. And, and th- these are things about our assurance, about our confidence. I don't mean about intellectually. I, d- I don't mean about what we've got up here. I mean, I hope we've got it all up there. I hope we read what Scripture says and say, oh, I believe that. Jesus rose again from the dead because he's died. I'm going to rise again. You know, we've got it up there. I'm talking about what gives us practical, experiential confidence and assurance when, we, when we're out there in the world and, and, and suddenly someone we love is terminally ill or we go to the doctor and we're told we've got cancer or something just goes totally wrong according to where we were wanting to go and expecting to go how can we be more assured let me just suggest three things first one is this submit to the Lordship of Christ in all of life you know, Paul's saying key to it here is that Jesus is Lord. That, that we don't just have that in our hearts, but that's what's been professed. And when we says professing it, he's talking about what comes out of our mouths. So that's, that's covering what we're singing in worship. It's covering what we're saying in our prayers. But it's also covering how we're talking to other people. But it's also covering how we live how we conduct ourselves. In everything, he's saying, what should be projecting from us is the reality that Jesus is Lord. My friends, if that's not happening, we're not going to have a lot of assurance. You know, and, and we, we, we'll only be living at, at a sort of Christianity at a level that when suddenly those pins are knocked out from under us, we're going to fall and we're going to really struggle. Whereas if central to our lives is the fact that Jesus is Lord. He's God, he's my saviour, and he's my king. And, I, and I'm, I'm living for his glory and I'm living for him. And if that is reality in how we live, it gives us tremendous assurance when things go hard. And even if we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. So submit to the Lordship of Christ in all of life. My friend, can you see Christ ruling in your plans? Do you see him ruling in your agenda, in your hopes and your aspirations in life? Is, is, it, is Christ at the centre of it? Is, is it his, about his glory? Is it about his lordship? Is it about your will be done? Secondly, confess Christ at every opportunity. I mean, that's implicit in this, isn't it? If you confess with your mouth Christ Jesus, and let's be honest, most of the time we're happy doing that in our worship, we're happy doing that in our prayers, we're happy doing that with Christians, and we find it a whole lot harder when we're in the workplace, 
or amongst non-Christians and suddenly it becomes very difficult and the temptation is to go silent on Christ the trouble then is we lose our assurance we lose our confidence in Christ notice this Paul if you want to be sure profess Christ confess Christ get it out there I said one of the most essential things I believe whenever you write a CV for a job is make sure you put on it that I'm a committed Christian just get it out there before you even get the interview it's so much easier than afterwards two or three days after you've been there doing the job somehow trying to bring up in conversation the fact that you're a Christian I mean just put it out there across the front of your CV I am a Christian you know first my first interest in life the Lord Jesus Christ if they don't want it, they won't have you. That's fine. Leave that with the Lord. But my friend, do you let people know that you're a Christian? Do you want them to know? Are you open about your faith? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, it should just be our nature as Christians, shouldn't it? That when we come to pray, we're talking about the Lordship of Christ. When we come to sing, we're singing about the Lordship of Christ. When we go to do our shopping, it's about the Lordship of Christ. When we're cleaning the car, it's about the Lordship of Christ. When we're in the workplace, it's about the Lordship of Christ. And the third thing I'd I'd argue for is this. Study Christology. Study what Scripture teaches about Jesus Christ. You know, if we don't know a lot about Jesus Christ, we're not going to have a lot of assurance in him, are we? Especially when things go hard. But if we really understand who Jesus is, what he has done, what the cross is all about, what atonement's about, what justification is about, what, what his resurrection is all about, if we really get those truths in detail in our minds and in our hearts and in our lives, it's so much easier to cope when things go hard. And we say, but I know who's in charge here. And I, and I know what he's done for me. And I know where my life's going. And no one can take that away once it's truly there in us. That means study, I know. And I know that's a dirty word in our culture and generation. But there are some amazing books out there to help us. But it does mean we're just going to have to get to grips with some of the harder words in, in biblical theology. And what they mean and why they're there in the Bible. Why does the Bible use the word propitiation? Not because they're trying to impress us with their long spelling. Because it's an amazing theology. It's amazing doctrine. And when we get it, and we hold it as dear and precious, we get amazing assurance. My friends, how's it going for you tonight? This is Paul's goal for us as Christians. Ephesians 4 verse 14 this is his prayer he says that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning by craftiness in deceitful schemes rather speaking the truth in love we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ He says, when we start off, we're just like, you know, we're just blown around. Someone comes up with some false doctrine and we're 
persuaded by that and then someone else says this and we think oh that sounds good I've got to believe that and then someone tells us the Bible teaches this and because we don't know any better we go along with them and he says we've just been blown here and there and everywhere he says that's not how it's supposed to be we're supposed to grow up in our understanding in our theology in Christ we're supposed to grow up into Christ who is the head so that we stand firm and certain and sure so that when the hard times come and my friend they're going to come they come in every life and the testing times come we won't be moved because we'll know that our saviour died and he rose again and that proves that we are safe for time and eternity in Christ just pray